Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Ja and Adam Brewer. Welcome to this week's episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. We're going to do a little bit of news catch-up because Adam and I have been bouncing around on vacations for the holidays, and we pre-recorded a lot of our shows. So the whole month of December, we basically didn't get any of the news. And so we're going to do some catch-up right now. Let's do it. The first thing that we do want to mention is... As of January 10th, which was just a few days ago, Microsoft is ending support for Windows 7 ESUs, the extended security updates, and also support for Windows 8.1, as well as a few other operating systems if you're using it, Windows Embedded, 8.1 Pro, Windows RT, Server 2008, and 2008 R2 ESUs have also expired. So if you haven't done it by now, you're going to want to update to Windows 10, 11, or Server 2012. Or 2016, you know, so on and so forth. Windows 10 is still supported. So, for those of you who may be asking, uh, you know, if we upgrade to Windows 10, when that will end support, it is October 14th, 2025. So, still a few years away, but maybe if you're taking the time to upgrade, you just go ahead and upgrade to Windows 11. So, the extended security updates program was only for enterprises and it was a paid program and it cost a fair amount of money and the amount of money doubled every year. So, most likely your company did not buy this. If they did, you know you did and you know you bought as few as possible and you probably bought less each year because it was intended to incentivize customers to not need them for all three years. But even if you did, if you paid for them for all three years, you're done. If you see a Windows 7 box anywhere, it is not receiving security updates any longer. The last batch of security updates was this patch Tuesday, a couple days ago now, you know, four or five days ago. And same true of Windows 8.1, which I don't know will be greatly missed, but uh, either way still is is leaving support as well. So, and Andy, you called out a couple of, of embedded. Windows RT was the release for ARM on the initial surface. And then server 2008 is finally riding off into the sunset as well. So it's a time of opportunity to modernize your, your Windows stack for sure. And, and like Andy said, Windows 10, you still got, boy, darn near, clo- you know, close to three years, you know, it's just a hair under, you know, more like two years and about nine months at this point. So still a fair amount of time on that OS to live on. And Windows 11, I believe at this point, we've only committed to what, a five-year support cycle, Andy. So that's till October, 2026. So that's an extra year at this point and possibly, you know, further support for that as well, but that has not been announced. So I think that's where we stand today. But yeah, kind of the end of an era. I know Windows 7 was beloved by many and there's probably still a lot of it out there and will be for some time. But I will say one thing that's different is, you know, the browser vendors kept supporting Windows XP for a long time after it went end of life. Like you could still get a supported version of Chrome and Firefox and that operating system, I believe for years after Microsoft ended support for it. The browsers aren't really doing that this time. They're going to do a couple more releases for like Windows 7, but not a lot. They're going to drop support as well. So this is really a time when it's well and truly time to move on. Yeah. And I probably would say if you have any of those machines still around, you probably want to segment them off and not expose them to the internet, which means that you shouldn't have a browser installed on it unless you need it for like an intra web app or something like that. So 
Good which point. you can just run on the built-in browser. There's no reason to download a third-party browser for that. The second bit of news, which I'm a little bit excited to talk about, is Apple made an announcement for some new security updates to their devices. And that was announced in December, early December. And then they quietly updated all of Apple's operating systems from Mac OS to iOS to iPad OS to TV OS and all that to include these security features. Now there's a whole news release of many of them. Some of them include the security keys that may be coming out for Apple ID. There's also a cool feature where it tells you if someone is spying on your messages. These are highly targetable people from nation state actors who may be eavesdropping on your conversations and then there's going to be some protections around that but the one that i was most interested in was this thing called advanced data protection and what this is is apple is encrypting icloud backups imessage backups icloud drive notes photos reminders safari bookmarks voice memos siri shortcuts and wallet passes and the biggest one in there of course is the icloud backup as well as the imessage backup because famously if you listen to the show we've talked about the san bernardino shooter and the fbi and if you think back to it you know the icloud backup was unencrypted and that's what they got and then the device Device was encrypted still and Apple and the FBI kind of had this standoff. If you read through the news press, it's really interesting because Apple is implementing this with the caveat that if Apple's servers get compromised, then this is protection for the users. It's really not any, you know, they're trying to word it very carefully because this is exactly what the FBI didn't want them to do. Because now if something happens and iCloud backups are encrypted, Apple's not going to have a way to recover any of that data for you. You're just the FBI is going to get an encrypted blob. So what it doesn't do is encrypt your email or contacts. So if you're using iCloud email and your contacts, those are still going to be unencrypted. I'm going to talk about real quick how this works. And then Adam, I know you, you have probably a bunch to say on this. So it's really, really interesting how they implemented this. And I really like it because as soon as you turn it on, it will communicate from the device that you turned on to all devices that are signed in with your Apple ID that you have an intent to turn on advanced data protection. And then it uses a new key essentially signed by the device local keys and then it puts that into your iCloud keychain device metadata. Apple servers can't remove or modify this attestation while it's getting synchronized to the other devices that are signed in with your iCloud ID or Apple ID. So after the intent is given to the other devices, the device that you're signed in on will start a removal of the available after authentication service keys from Apple data centers. These keys are protected by iCloud hardware security modules or HSMs. And once the keys are deleted, it's permanent. They'll never get them back. And so they're deleting the keys that can that are shared with Apple that can access your iCloud data. And then after they're deleted, they actually rotate new keys in that are only synced to the device that you initiated it on. And so Apple has no access. Once the keys are deleted and rotated, there's new keys on there that Apple has never had access to and they will never have access to and it's end-to-end encrypted. So it's kind of cool because they didn't just remove the keys. They're actually rotating brand new keys that have never been in Apple's data centers to your devices after you've initiated it. You can do this on a Mac 
or on an iPhone. And when you do this, you do have to specify some recovery information. You have to specify a recovery contact and a key, I think. I tried to do it with just a key and it errored out on me, but I'm not sure if there was it was because of something I did wrong. So when I tried it again, I specified a recovery contact as well as a key and it let it go through. So, you know, give it a try. If you don't want to have a recovery contact, I used my wife as a recovery contact. And then I also have a recovery key that I stored in a password vault. I did have to update all of my current Apple devices to the most current operating system. It gave me a list of all the Apple TVs that I had. And for some reason, even though I had automatic updates, I had to go back and manually update them all to TV OS 16.2. And for some reason, my iCloud on Windows wouldn't update. So I just removed it. And then one other thing is if you're using managed IDs, which is like an organization ID or any child accounts, those are not eligible for advanced data protection. But overall, my experience when I enabled it was pretty smooth. It didn't take very long. It gave me a couple of warnings first off when I didn't have all my devices updated, but once they were updated and I had my recovery information in there, it went through. And as far as I know, now I have end-to-end -end encrypted backups. So pretty excited about that. And you know, just another, for me, another feather in Apple's hat as far as security and privacy. This is one of those things that people sometimes misunderstand about Apple because Apple is a really good example of measure twice, cut once. And they never even tell you they're working on something. They say, hey, we did a thing. Here it is. It's ready now or it'll be ready in a week, which is very different than a lot of tech companies that um, in our industry that like to say a lot about what they're doing way ahead of time, announcing their roadmap or announcing things they're working on. And then it turns into vaporware or whatever. Like hats off to Apple because this has been a pain point for a long time for a lot of folks saying Apple has this great privacy story, but to be honest, it falls down in this key area where you can say, hey, iMessage is truly end-to-end -end encrypted. It's secure. You know, nobody can eavesdrop on your conversation, but the backups, or if you have iMessage in the cloud turned on, they're sent there in Apple's data center and Apple has the keys to decrypt it and can and will respond to, you know, a valid subpoena for that information um, and has the ability to do that. And so there's always this thing of like you talked about, Andy, historically, was this like throwing a bone to law enforcement because law enforcement has in sometimes wanted backdoors for the hardware encryption on device and kind of the consolation prize of saying, well, hey, you know, we can't get you in the device, but all their stuff's in our cloud anyways, and we can hand that over to you, no problem. Always kind of felt like trying to keep them off their back. And the way the solution is implemented, the majority of people are probably not going to turn this on. And it's one of those things of, I would recommend most people do it. However, there are caveats that come with it. There are risks involved with it. There is the possibility of permanent data loss in a scenario in which, you know, you lose access to so many devices or whatever all at once. I mean, they're pretty catastrophic scenarios, but it is theoretically possible. Before, you always kind of had that safety blanket that Apple could get you back in because they had the keys. And now they don't. It's all on you, for better or for worse. So it sounds like, I mean, I've not turned this on yet myself. Sounds like the implementation is really good from a security perspective, you know, hearing you kind of walk through Andy, they were storing the keys in HSMs before, which is pretty impressive. And the fact that you're wiping those keys out, you're rotating keys that are derived from the hardware into the cloud storage and Apple has no knowledge of those keys. That's pretty cool. It's exactly what you'd want it to be. And so now you do have that loophole closed to where it was, you know, you had this great on-device protection story 
great on device protection that fell down when anything went to the cloud. I mean, to truly be secure, the advice used to be, well, turn off iCloud backup, turn off iMessage in the cloud, turn off this, 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 and this. And now you've got, you know, a really good security posture. But I mean, for a lot of people, that was a really negative impact on usability and functionality. It kind of took you back to like 2010, 2011 era, like smartphones in which they were, everything was on device, nothing synced to the cloud. There wasn't any of the kind of magic things we take for granted today. Like something as simple as like iCloud photo library is magical. You just take pictures and they just upload to the cloud and then they're on all your devices. And oh, hey, you need more storage on your device? Well, we'll take anything that's already been safely stored in the cloud and we'll get rid of the cached copy local on your device. And we'll just manage that storage for you. Like that's one example of so many things that to be truly private and secure, you couldn't do until now. So really, really, really good stuff. That's awesome. I will say one note for anyone who's done the HomeKit upgrade, which also came out in 16.2 and then Apple walked that back. Andy showed a picture of his screenshot of his iPhone telling him he had to update all his devices. I had the same experience with the HomeKit upgrade where it's like, you got to update your Apple TVs. You got to update your HomePods. You've got to update your Apple Watch. Just like it's everything. It's super comprehensive and you don't even realize kind of how many devices you've quietly acquired in your home until that thing pops up. It's like, man, you've got five Apple TVs to update or whatever it is. It was, we were kind of having fun, poking fun at each other on uh, how many Apple devices we own at this point. So good stuff. Yeah. So I will say one ding, right? Because we're singing a lot of Apple praise here, but one ding is that this is not turned on by default. And like you said, Adam, most people probably won't go around and do this. So if, for example, I were to send you an iMessage right now, that message would then be stored in your iMessage backup, which is unencrypted. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not end-to-end encrypted right? As well as any shared photos or any shared things among those uh, notes, Mm -hmm. those would also not be encrypted, right? Unless even I think if both parties have this turned on, I think there's something that Apple has to do to share them between two users. So if it's like a share thing, it clearly says in the documentation, any shared photos, any shared notes, all that stuff are not going to be protected. Right. So, you know, if this falls in your category and you, this is a risk factor for you, it's something to definitely keep in mind. It's not like, say, Signal, which is default end-to-end encrypted between two users. This mm-hmm. You would have to make sure the other person turns on advanced data protection and then don't use any of the sharing functions. That's a really good call out. And I think that's where, in Apple's case their desire to do this conflicts with their market position and the attention that any move they make gets. And so I would rather they did this by default. I would rather this was enabled by default. I think A, they'd have a supportability challenge because Apple does have to support people from all walks of life. I'll walk into a mall Apple store if you need a reminder of what that looks like. And then the other thing too is that might draw undue attention and might actually worsen security and privacy in the Apple ecosystem. Because if that really, really pisses off the FBI and they come back and you never know with the composition of the Supreme Court today or whatever, like, could we see a scenario in which Apple is ordered to create a backdoor in iOS and is ordered to create a backdoor in their cloud surface or something? I mean, I'm just spitballing here, but by leaving this not turned on by default, they may be protecting worse outcomes overall that would ruin and diminish security for everyone. So at least this is available for those of us that want to turn it on. And that's where Apple's in such a delicate position of balancing their desire to do security and privacy against the operating environment that 
they're in and the political environment of the United States in 2023. And like you also said, there is a real risk of data loss. When I walked through this, every single screen had a warning that said, you know, Apple's not going to be able to recover your information if you lose your recovery contact or you don't specify one or you lose your recovery key, you know, they do not have access to recover your data. And if I think back to my days as a support person, Geek Squad and Best Buy, several people came in and they had File Vault enabled on their Macs and they didn't have the decryption key or they forgot their iCloud password or whatever it was. And we're like, well, that's that's it. Like you can't recover that data. And if you know Macs, the File Vault is also not enabled by default. Mm-mm. So it's something that you have to manually go and turn on. And that's probably by design because if you do that, then there's a risk of data loss if you lose your key or you lose your password or your keychain gets messed up or whatever it is. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think they will ever turn this on by default, maybe you know, mm-hmm. years and years down the road, decades, but at least it's there for those of us who want it. And I turned it on and I obviously understand the risks because I have a ton of stuff that's end-to-end encrypted and device encryption. So I think it's great. I'm really mm-hmm. excited about it and let us know if you have any issues when you turn it on. Our last Last one is just to cover LastPass. This happened also towards the end of the year and there was a big breach. Now I'm not going to go through a huge technical deep dive of it, but I do want to cover it in case you haven't read a bunch of the articles or you haven't heard about it in the news. Steve Gibson on Security Now, which is another security podcast, has already two episodes on this and he does a very, very technical deep dive on it. If you're a listener of that or you really want to find out more about the math behind it, the details of why this is so bad. I mean, it's like three hours of content, so you do have to have time to listen to it. Mm -hmm. We're going to just go over the highlights, so if you just want to hear the highlights... We're going to go through it now. So what happened is LastPass had a breach back in August of 2022, and then they had a blog that was continually updated as they did their investigation. What happened was on December 22nd, a hammer was dropped where this blog article was updated with some disturbing details as well as some lack of transparency, I would say, on LastPass's part to give us who have been customers or are customers of LastPass exactly you know, what happened. But to read uh, word for word from their blog to kind of sum it up, it said, to date, we have determined that once the cloud storage access keys and dual storage container decryption keys were obtained, the threat actor copied information from backups that contained basic customer account information, related metadata, including company names, end usernames, billing addresses, email addresses, telephone numbers, and IP addresses from where the customers were accessing the LastPass service. The threat actor was also able to copy a backup of customer vault data from the encrypted storage container, which is stored in a proprietary binary format that contains both unencrypted data, such as website URLs, as well as fully encrypted sensitive fields, such as website username, password, secure notes, and form field data. So I see you shaking your head, Adam, because as I read that, I mean, it's pretty bad. Basically, someone obtained backups of LastPass vaults. And one of the things that Steve Gibson said on his show is like, if they would have worded it like they were able to obtain a backup of customer vault data, like some of customer vault data, or like put a little qualifier in there, then they probably would have done it. This basically implies that everybody's was copied. They lost the keys to the kingdom or backup to it, right? And they didn't tell us when that backup was. We have no idea how far back it was, but it was there. And 
and a lot of unencrypted data, metadata, all that stuff. So if you have a weak password or a low entry B password, like a low character count or something that's not random, like a passphrase, which is most likely because you have to remember your master password and it's probably really hard to remember a really completely random master password. It's possible, but most people don't. And you're definitely or probably in trouble here. MFA, even if you had MFA enabled, will not help because it's a backup of the vault. So you're not having to authenticate to LastPass servers to get to your vault to decrypt it. It's already past authentication. They already have the data. And what they also have is the number of iterations of password-based key derivation functions or PBKDF2. And that's important because how LastPass and actually most modern password vaults use PBKDF2 to strengthen your master password and makes it less brute forceable. So how LastPass does it, and it's going to be similar to how most modern password vaults do it, is because of the age of GPUs and how easy it is to essentially run stuff through rainbow tables or brute force passwords. They use this algorithm to run your master password through and come out with like a hash to then use. LastPass uses three things that are known in order to obtain a login hash. Number one is your master password. Number two is the number of iterations. And number three is your email address. So those are the three things that are important. And how that works is they use this function, the PBKDF2 with SHA-256, and then the number of rounds of iterations that you specify either manually or using LastPass default on the master password with your email as the salt to create an encryption key. Then they use the function again on your encryption key with your master password as the salt to create a login hash to then authenticate to the servers along with then MFA once you've hit the authentication servers. So pretty important. And if you want to understand a little bit more about the math behind all of this, I suggest you listen to the Security Now episode because Steve Gibson does a great job of going through all this. But that's basically the three things that they need. And out of those three things, the master password, the number of iterations, and the email, the threat actors have two. They know the iterations from the vault and the metadata that they stole. And they also, of course, have your email address, which is unencrypted. Now, all they need to do is brute force your master password. And if you have a weak master password, it's game over. Or if you have a very low number of iterations, that also will make it very easy or trivial for them to decrypt your vault. And what happened is, as Steve went through his episodes, a bunch of his listeners went back and looked at their LastPass vaults. And LastPass has incrementally made the number of iterations higher throughout the years because of how GPUs have evolved. They started pretty low, then they went to like maybe 500 or 1,000. A few years ago, they went to 10,000. And then now the default is 100,100 iterations. And when Steve's listeners went back and looked at the number of iterations, they realized that number one, many of the listeners surprisingly had only one iteration, literally the number one, which is essentially all your data is gone. And then many of them also discovered that throughout the years, as LastPass has bumped up the number of iterations as the default, they didn't proactively go back and raise everybody's iterations. So as they've bumped this up, some people have just been at 10,000 for many, many years. So that significantly weakens their vault and their security. OWASP actually recommends 310,000 iterations of PBKDF2 
Adam and I are one password users and I went and looked them up. They're at a hundred thousand iterations, which you can't go and manually change. They just set it for everybody who is a customer of one password. But also if you know one password, they also have a 34 character secret key that's created right off the bat. So it's kind of multi-factor or two-factor, I should say, right off the bat, because in order to log into a new vault that has never been logged in on a device, you have to enter in your email address, your master password, and the secret key, which is generated when you have that. And then for some folks like me and Adam, we have then another one-time passcode or time-based passcode that you have to enter in on top of that. So the function includes that 34 character secret key, which I don't know what the math generates if it's 310,000 iterations or something, you know, it's stronger than just 100,000 iterations of pure PBKDF2. And then one of the popular ones that are out there, Bitwarden, which is an open source password vault, they are 100,001, but then you can manually go in there and set it to 1 million, 2 million iterations. Now, the key to remember is that the more iterations you have, your client-side decryption gets lengthened when you access your vault. So when you log in, it has to go through those iterations. Now, with modern computing, that's usually just a few seconds. We're not talking about like a minute. We're talking like maybe instant versus like three, four seconds, five seconds. So maybe for whatever reason, LastPass, when they raised the number of iterations, they're like, we don't want to affect anyone. We can't support all the help desk calls that'll come in or something like that. And they decided and made the decision to not raise everybody else's, which is a poor decision. And for a password vault company, that's really dereliction of duty in my opinion. So, you know, if you're a LastPass user or LastPass Enterprise user, I would consider moving off of them as soon as possible. Bitwarden is a very good free option. So if you wanted something free, they're very good. It's full featured code goes through audits and they have enterprise options as well. One password is great. I've been using it for years. Adam's been using it even longer than me. They do have enterprise options as well, but there isn't a free tier. So that's the biggest thing with one password. Dashlane has also come up as a pretty good option. So that's another one, but I think those are pretty much the top three in my mind as far as password vaults. Um, if you're a Microsoft customer, we've gotten a couple of questions about, say, Edge, Sync, and passwords within Edge. While generally as a security professional, I generally recommend not syncing any passwords to your browser, although I know many consumers do, especially with Chrome and Chrome Sync. Those are encrypted blobs and they are encrypted like client side. Same with Edge Sync for personal MSAs. For enterprises, it encrypts it using Microsoft purview information protection so it is technically encrypted however for information protection admins you can decrypt it but of course you have to have the right permissions and all that because it is a shared key among enterprise so it's not something you can just automate it's it's pretty you know when we did that and decrypted say emails that were encrypted with information protection we had to do it one by one so it's not something that you can just mass produce and obviously you want paper trail and all that to do that so same as any compliance thing so it is fairly safe to store them i would say in edge but password vault is usually the uh, most security professionals recommend a password vault.
So I've been following this story for a while and kind of my initial reaction back in August, I think it was when you had people screaming, the sky was falling was kind of typical, a little bit of rolling my eyes and here, here go the tinfoil hats again, you know, and especially with these updates that came out in December, it became crystal clear that this isn't tinfoil hat stuff anymore. And Andy, when you were reading verbatim, the blog post from LastPass, what I was really kind of rolling my eyes at and shaking my had at was the fact that some fields were unencrypted. It's like you're taking all the time to encrypt all these fields, but why are you not encrypting these fields? Like, I don't understand that. And that's, you know, some of the other competitors have pointed out how their architecture is different. They don't like leave other fields unencrypted. Like, it's just crazy. And so a threat actor here, without even decrypting your vault, understand this, has your email address and has a list of every site you've generated a password for. Well, if you're using a password vault, I'd like to think you weren't reusing your password, but it might be worth a shot to try some credit stuffing, I have a really nice targeted list of places I can go and attempt to log in. And that's super valuable. And I've seen people point stuff out like that. So I mean, that was part of the problem. You kind of went through the rest of the architectural concerns pretty well. So I don't think I have a ton to add there. I, I think obviously, at this point, they've kind of eroded most of the trust they have using a password manager really runs on trust. So if you can't trust them, then you can roll your own kind of with Bitwarden do love one password think they do a really nice job. They actually did post a blog post where they kind of walk through their architecture and how it's different. You mentioned the truly random secret key is part of the process in addition to your, you know, one password, your vault password. And so having that truly random key is critical, I think, to their architectural differences. But password vaults are always going to be, I mean, gosh, that's an extremely attractive target. And that's not going to change. So it is incumbent on whatever vendor you throw in with that they're really, really, really committed to taking that very, very, very seriously because they're always going to be that shiny object for the attackers to go after. So disappointing stuff for sure, but I think we can learn something from it as always if we take our growth mindset and carry it forward. And I know not fun to migrate. And if you're doing that migration, you probably need to be rotating your passwords as well. But again, make it into an opportunity. There's probably sites you didn't stand up 2FA for your last time around. So now it's an opportunity to do that. Maybe some sites have, remember how a lot of sites used to have like password maximums, like eight to 20 characters. Maybe some of them have gotten smarter and you can do a longer one now. So, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be the end of the world, but uh, definitely, definitely concerning here. And if you were a LastPass customer, you may be spending some time uh, signing into a lot of sites and going through a lot of reset password flows. Our thoughts are with you as you go through that for sure, but gotta stay on your toes in this business. Yeah, so my thoughts and prayers as well to anyone who's using LastPass. There is an export function. I actually went and did my parents' LastPass vault uh, just recently after the you know this whole news came out. They weren't really actively using it. I tried the export function, imported it into a free version of Bitwarden, and it didn't catch all the passwords. So my mom only had like maybe 15, and I think they caught like seven. So I'm I'm not really sure the export function is working all that great, but yeah, that was my experience. Although Steve Gibson on his show when some of his users called in and went to Bitwarden, they said it was pretty seamless. You said roll your own. It is important to, to note that Bitwarden has a hosted version that you can use, okay. like a SaaS version, but also... Mm-hmm you can stand up your own Bitwarden instance, which is kind of cool, but I mean, 
I don't think I'd want to maintain my own password vault. Like, I, I guess if you're a super tinfoil hat kind mm -hmm. of person, right? But there is a hosted version. So you, you can use a SaaS version free. And then, of course, there's a paid version. I think it's only like 10 bucks for a single user or something like that. Did not know they had a SaaS version. So thanks for correcting me there. I knew you could roll your own. Yep. Didn't know they had the SaaS model too. Yeah. Good to know. They're actually pretty decent, but I still personally enjoy the user experience of 1Password. I think mm -hmm. it's very solid, especially since 1Password, I think initially was a mobile app. It is very mm -hmm. mobile device friendly, which I really enjoy. It's surprising about it and not to get on this complete tangent, but they started as a, an Apple centric developer, right? They were originally Mac OS and iOS only. And the crazy thing is they have a beautiful Windows app and it supports Windows Hello. So for me to unlock my vault, ironically, nowadays is easier on my Windows PCs than it is on any of my Macs because I don't have a Mac with Face ID. Do they make a Mac with Face ID? I don't even know. Anyhow, it, <laughs> I just look at my surface, you know, and it unlocks my vault and it's great. So, I mean, they, they do a really, really nice job with that. Um, and with the, whatever version of iOS it was where Safari started supporting extensions on mobile, that was the game changer because now you get inline prompts. You don't even have to like click uh, the like keyboard autofill. Now it's actually inline of the web page. So you just tap and it's filled and it's phenomenal. Really, really good. Yeah. I didn't know that existed until our little side chat of tech guys talked about it so if you don't know safari ex supports extensions and one password is one that has a extension and this is on mobile devices so like on ios mm -hmm. and that was really cool game changer it really is <laughs> yeah well that's our show for this week thanks for listening and watching as always our contact information will be in the show notes if you have any questions or topics you want us to talk about on future shows thanks we'll talk to you guys next week thank you for listening to the blue security podcast please check out the show notes catch up on episodes you may have missed and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Find Andy on Twitter at AJAW0 and Adam at AJ Brewer. See you at our next episode.